Today's reading is Mark 12, 18 through 27. It can be found on page 936 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, then the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. The word of the Lord. very important we podcast this to a million <laughs> a million people listen to this okay my mom listens to it but she's worth a million okay um, so I'll swap out mic number one if, if you can find number two somewhere back there in the drawer 
give it a shot. So this is a strange teaching of Jesus, um, especially the marriage part, not, you know, not given in marriage after the resurrection. I'm going to start with something a little stranger. Um, there's a movie called District 9 that I got to see a couple weeks ago. And um, actually a very good movie, strangely that it was this good. It was an alien invasion of Earth kind of movie. Um, and uh, I was surprised at how good it was. Um, and in this movie, this is just very briefly what I want. I'm not going to tell you the whole you know, plot of the movie. It's, it's a good movie, though. You should see it. District 9. The aliens whose ship is hovering over Johannesburg, they have these weapons, and the humans stumble upon them and find these weapons. If you've seen it, there's this thing, this interesting thing that goes on is that the humans can't get the weapons to work. They're biologically linked, thank you, to the bodies of um, this particular, you know, species of alien. So the aliens can, you know, to simplify it, the alien can pull the trigger and it works and the human can't. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't work. It's like the, in, the, in these weapons, are, they're amazing. They, they, they're like nothing that anyone has invented. And um, so let me switch over and try this microphone a second. There we go. Are we getting anything now? Nothing? Check, check, test, test, test. Testing. <laughs> Testing. You can hear me nonetheless? I'm going to stand here. All right. They can't access the weapons. They can't access the power. There's something standing in the way of it. And that's a little bit like what Jesus is saying about this teaching today with this group called the Sadducees. Um, They can't access, there's a power that they can't access uh, that is in the teaching of the resurrection. Okay, so now I have to go over and get my notes. This is is really strange what's happening here. I moved over here, but I left my notes over there. Okay, so I'm going to walk over. All right. Hey, booyah. Just thought I'd try that. So we're back. Thank you. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, James. That was good. Um, I'm glad I have to walk back and forth. That was that was good. Uh, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and they can't access... Jesus. Did you notice the phrase? You do not know the, the power of God. What an interesting way to react to this issue of the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection and without it, they don't, ha- they don't know the power of God. In one of our oldest creeds that before this service is over, we'll get a chance to say together, the Apostles' Creed is our statement of faith. It'll be uh, in the service in just a moment. We'll say, in, as a part of that, we'll say the statement of believing in the resurrection of the body. Central to the Christian faith. But just, just do a little analysis of yourself right now with respect to that belief. Where do you find yourself with respect to that? Is it something that, in, in a sense, you've handled as a peripheral part of the Christian faith, not really sure what to do with it, and maybe it doesn't seem tangible enough or practical enough to be a part of any sort of daily engagement with God, so you just kind of leave it out here and pay attention to everything else. Or maybe you've affirmed and you say, and maybe you learned in a class somewhere, or you've been saying that creed for years, and you say, yeah, sure, I believe in the resurrection of the body, it's in the Bible, yada, yada. But, you know, it's kind of dull and lifeless. It's a dull and lifeless doctrine, maybe. Um, 
you know, and once a year it changes the kind of songs that we end up singing when we come together on Sunday, right? What did Easter? There you go. Some of these knows what I'm talking about. You know, we we sing Easter songs. They have to do with resurrection, but then the rest of the year, just move on. And do you notice I'm talking about the resurrection of the body and not, very important, not just heaven today. It's possible if I don't say this right up front because our kind of cultural theology is so geared towards heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, that if I don't clarify and say we are talking about the bigger picture of the afterlife, the more central part of the Christian's view of what the afterlife is, which is, well, heaven is being in God's presence, there's still a sense of waiting and anticipating the new creation, the resurrection of the body of all those who are God's children and living in the new creation. So that's the biblical kind of full-orb view of the future, and that's what this is talking about, the resurrection. Strongly affirmed in this passage by Jesus, and yet the suggestion is you might not be accessing an essential power in your life towards your faith if you, if you aren't connecting with it, if you aren't knowing it, if you aren't integrating it into your life. Everett Ferguson, writing about the origins of the Christian faith, he wrote that the Sadducees, their essential problem was that their temporal concerns were creating an inadequate attention to the spiritual side of human existence. Can you resonate a little bit with that? That there's an inadequate attention perhaps in your own life, in your own outlook, in your own sense of church and community, an inadequate attention to the spiritual side of human existence. I think there's a way in which every one of us, if we we can put ourselves in the shoes of these, these folks who are arguing against the resurrection and see that the Sadducees' disease is all of our spiritual disease, inadequate attention to the spiritual side of human existence. Let's look at them a second. The Sadducees were a first century sort of aristocratic uh, Jewish sect whose families were in control of operating the temple. They had made their peace and sort of they had made an alliance with the Roman occupiers, which had them standing out a little bit in the broader Jewish community as um, accommodators in a sense. So they control the temple. They're politically accommodating to the, to the greater cultural powers that be. And yet, theologically, there was a sort of conservative bent towards them. So they seem kind of liberal politically, but conservative in terms of only looking to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as authoritative scripture. And all kind of the other writings and the prophets after that. That's why Jesus, at the end of the story, when he cites scripture to prove the resurrection, he goes all the way back, not to some of the more explicit references in Isaiah and Daniel, but he goes back to Exodus. talks about the burning bush experience and how that points to God being the God of the living. And so the one last and final and most important thing for this story is that they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in this idea of resurrected bodies sometime in the future. The afterlife doesn't include that for them. In fact, they have theological reasons, but also political, social reasons. So they don't believe in this, and they're going to trap Jesus in an argument. I remember as a kid some walking along and some kids I didn't know uh, saying, Hey, kid, 
And they had this genius little thing that was supposed to kind of, you know, be mean to me and make fun of me. They tried to trap me in a little argument. They said, it's very simple and it's beautiful. If you love children, you'll love this. They said, are you a dummy or a muskrat? And it was so bizarre that that memory has stuck with me. And eventually I looked it up. And, of course, I knew what a dummy was, so I knew I wasn't that. I didn't want them to laugh, so I didn't know what the other one was, but I was sure, so I said I was a muskrat. And, you know, the truth is they laughed at me. Either way, they were going to laugh at me. They kind of had me trapped in this setup, this genius, you know, 10-year-old genius setup. The Sadducees are a little more complex than that, and they're going about what I guess experts of logic would call reductio ad absurdum, which is a way of arguing, and the exact definition of it is, I have with me right here, it's a method of disproving a proposition by showing that its inevitable consequences would be absurd. So the Sadducees go back to the Mosaic leveret laws for marriage in the book of Deuteronomy, and they set up this scenario. They know that those leveret laws of marrying the widow in order to, they know that those exist for good reason. They have good economic and social and even kind of reputational kind of reasons. So they know that. And their little setup of, you know, the seven husbands meet at the resurrection and they're all the husband of the same wife and they're all brothers, which makes it even weirder. Would God or God through Moses institute such laws if someday those people would all rise up again and be bodily people and have this ridiculous and scandalous dilemma? Well, you know, since that would be scandalous and odd and weird, why then the resurrection must not exist. Certainly those Mosaic laws were in order. God wanted that because they came from those, you know, from the first five books of the Bible. But this resurrection idea, it must be, you know, reductio ad absurdum. It must be ridiculous and absurd. So think about it this way. Think about what the Sadducees are doing. For them, laws that deal with social and economic realities that God might, you know, give to us as ways to live, they say, yes, that makes perfect sense. I can totally believe that God would would give us these kinds of helpful laws and ways to live. Makes sense. It's practical. The doctrine of the resurrection, it doesn't fit. It doesn't seem practical. And maybe in some sense you feel the exact same way. It doesn't seem in some way essential Despite the fact that I bet if, if you were to really think about yourself and what you think about yourself, that there is a spiritual oneness that you feel in your, between your body and your soul, and you feel like without a body, that your soul in some way is incomplete. That you feel, if you were to think, imagine real hard about eternal life without your body, that you almost have no way of imagining that being really fully good, the way you can imagine goodness. Despite that, we're still kind of resistant and hesitant to see the, the practicality of the resurrection. We have an inadequate attention to the spiritual side of human existence. It's not just a doctrine 
It's not just a difficult doctrine, this thing of the resurrection. You see that with the Sadducees. As R.T. France, a scholar from Oxford, writes about the Sadducees, he says that they're, because of their lack of belief in the resurrection, they're hung up on reputation and posterity. That they can't help but make life all about reputation and posterity. And I think we can relate. If you think about how much of your time is spent measuring yourself up against other people's view of you or building a sort of life resume, whether literally through your work or through other accomplishments, trying to please friends, potential spouse or spouse, parents, living for reputation. And you find that um, you're so dependent on positive feedback about yourself that when you get confronted on something or not complimented or criticized even, that you lose sleep over it. And you're up two hours later because of someone hit you where it hurts and told, in some cases, just simply told the truth about you. But you don't want to hear it. Living for reputation. We live for posterity, too. We have the same disease as the Sadducees when we live for our posterity. For In some way, you're living maybe for children, maybe to have children or to have the spouse that you would like in order to have children, or maybe, in a sense, you, you have children already and um, things haven't turned out with your children. There's some, been some disappointment or some uh, way in which your hopes and dreams haven't been fulfilled with regard to children, and you feel like, in some ways, like yourself is on the line, or you can find yourself wrapped up almost in a helicopter parenting where every um, little positive thing, you, you realize if you really stop and look at yourself that every positive uh, little experience of your children um, is where you're going for your own positive identity and you realize it's not about you or it's not about them, it's about you. I think we have the same disease as the Sadducees. Very common and it affects, as it did with them, it affects the view of marriage because the Sadducees can't imagine um, marriage uh, playing out in the afterlife. Um, marriage is a practical vehicle, in a sense, for them to prop up their identity. Um, and clearly it's going to be problematic. If that's what it is, it's clearly going to be problematic if you have this strange scenario of people having to figure out, well, whose wife are you? Because marriage has been, in a sense, elevated to this identity qualifier. And uh, Jesus, when he says um, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, he's alluding to a much more biblical view of marriage in that marriage is like training wheels and someday in the resurrection the training wheels will be off and you'll be riding fully, finally, and to imagine it otherwise would be like, I don't know if anyone does mountain biking, but would be like, to, to take the Pharisee, or the Sadducees, sorry, the Sadducees' position in the story would be like imagining mountain biking 
with training wheels, that that's the good way to go mountain biking. I don't know if you've ever, I tried it once, kind of the real intense, uh, I didn't try it with training wheels, but I tried, I tried mountain biking once. And uh, there's an intense rush, and, but you know, the, the idea that somehow you do that with training wheels, ridiculous. Um, marriage, if you look at it through what Jesus is saying here, marriage has faded to the background as something needed now, in a sense, in our brokenness and in our mess, the need to have some glimpse, some glimmer, some foreshadowing of a greater oneness that will be so full and so complete at the moment that Christians look forward to of the body, bodily resurrection. That if you know the power of God, Jesus is saying, there's a day when you won't need a one-on-one relationship to prop up your identity and to say things like, you complete me. Or to look into one person for your satisfaction in life. God will have, at that day, at that one day in the future, will have completely restored your whole being. He will have propped you up. He will have satisfied you fully. He will have completed you. Maybe you feel a little bit like you need propping up right now. Like you need, in some ways, you feel incomplete. Do you feel incomplete sometimes? Do you feel unsatisfied sometimes? And Christians, uh, when you are baptized, when you become a Christian, you're baptized, you're baptized into the death and into the resurrection of Jesus. And you plant yourself on a new resurrection way. And in that way, you don't know yet the fullness of that oneness of God that props you up and satisfies you completely and, and completes you. You don't know that fully yet, but you begin to get glimpses and tastes of a great feast of being with God that there will be. So that it's not an exaggeration when um, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Christian view is described. Romans 8, verse 23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. So, is central to the Christian hope the idea of new bodies and a new creation? When you finally experience what is described here as, as the adoption that you have into the family of God, you are God's child, beloved, truly God's, and you get glimpses of that now. But you don't get the full thing. You don't know it fully. You get even glimpses of it through relationships like marriage and like the good that can be there and the oneness that can be experienced. But it's just a taste. It's just a glimpse. And you see, Christians uh, in the church, in the church we don't, um, we don't speculate and debate about the resurrection the way that the Sadducees were doing with Jesus. 
there's, there's no debate because of these glimpses, because the power of God is at work in the church. And it began way at the beginning when, when Jesus, contrary to accomplishing a lot of the more tangible social or political things that we would expect in an important figure, most of the important figures you can think of and that you could list off in the last hundred years or last 2,000 years did more kind of politically or socially in their time than Jesus did while he was alive. But what he did was he talked about dying and rising. He predicted it. And then he, he died and they saw him dead. And then they saw him again. His, his, visit, his, sorry, his disciples and his followers saw him alive eating And he even was seen with 500 people at one time. 500 people saw him in one, you know, in one kind of uh, showing, so to speak. He was there. He was seen. And that's those are the glimpses, and those are the tastes that the Christian church has of this power of God that begins to seep out when Jesus ascends. The power of God is now accessed through Jesus. You know what's really weird? A good sci-fi movie has some really weird stuff in it. And in District 9, uh, the movie I was, I was talking about, of course, has this amazing thing where the main character, one of the humans, uh, through some really weird twist of events, he ends up starting to turn into one of the aliens. It is a good movie. I'm serious. I know it doesn't sound like it. It's really, I liked it. Um, so, he's, so he has an arm. He has an alien arm, basically. It starts with, conveniently with his right arm which he can then use on these weapons. Doesn't it sound like a terrible movie? Um, it's good. And, uh, and so you have this, suddenly you have this, this person who, is, who has become the other and the power is access. And I'm not going to tease that out much further than just to say that there is a, a very much a similarity in what we read about Jesus and what he means for humanity in God visiting us and becoming one of us the incarnation of Jesus brings that power to you and to me through his work on our behalf on the cross. We are adopted into Jesus' family, into the Father's family, through the forgiveness of sins. And that power now, through that whole exchange, is a part of our experience as a church and as Christians so that you get these kind of instances like one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Acts chapter 4. Read the whole thing at some point because what's in it is, is this barrage of the power of God in the Christian church that's still alive and active, I believe, today. You have John and Peter, who were timid disciples before Jesus rose from the dead, are out publicly speaking and ministering. They heal a man who was born blind. Um, after 40 years, he was that way. Um, Actually, was he blind? I might get that. I might be getting that wrong. But he was healed, nonetheless. No, he was he was uh, crippled for forty years. They heal him, and then they're preaching. And guess who's listening and who's upset about it? They're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. The Sadducees are up in arms and interrogate him about it. But then then it says about about them that the Sadducees looked at them and they saw the courage of Peter and John. They were witnessing the power of God in their life. And they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. So they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then by the end of this scene... 
you have the, them being released from prison and joining the Christian community, and they're praying together. And this is how their prayer ends. I'm going to read five verses that are sort of this barrage of the power of God in the church and just see what you pick up. Now, Lord, consider their heart, their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. End quote. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, and they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Do you sense the multifaceted breadth of this power of God in the church? Uh, the key access point is Jesus. And even the Sadducees, as they looked on, they noticed. That's all we can, all we can make sense of is that they, they were with Jesus. So that's, that's, the, that's the question, or that's the encouragement as we close. You want to access the power of God? Go to Jesus. Find yourself with Jesus and with Him and with His people, the body of Christ, regularly in prayer. Find yourself with the one who said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes to me has life. Let us pray. God of grace, will you... Put these words not just into our ears and into our minds, but deep into our hearts. And help us on our way. As so much distracts us from you and distracts us from prayer and distracts us from uh, your community of faith in which there is great power. And whether we come today really wishing we had a connection to you that was vibrant, or whether we wish a power of yours could apply to a specific trouble in our life, or whether we just really want to be an exciting member of your mission to bring good news and healing and food for the poor. And we want to be a part of that in a powerful way. We just don't know how.